So this morning, I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of Titus. And my title this morning is, What is Titus About? The best way to figure that out is, if, is to read it. So we're going to read the book of Titus. Um, don't worry, it's only three chapters, and between the three chapters, we only have uh, 46 verses, so don't, don't panic. Um, this morning, if you did not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you, and you may find this passage on page number 998. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have an ESV Bible, we would love for you to have one, so feel free to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you and just take it home. We'd love for you to have it and read it. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, 
kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The, trust, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is worth and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I said, send Artemis and Titicus to you, do your best to come to me, to Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts. Father, thank you for this book that you have included in the canon of Scripture 
Thank you for this correspondence between Paul and Titus. Lord, as we begin this new sermon series, we ask for your grace. We ask for your spirit to help us understand what it's meant and what it means for us today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ and for his glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. What is Titus about? As we have just read this passage, I hope, I hope you were able to, to pick on some, on some language, some themes that seem to be repeated, that seem to be emphasized. I just want to encourage you in, in this practice of, of reading Scripture a book at a time. It's, and now, doing it with a short book is, is a little more manageable than doing it with, with books like, like Isaiah, 66 chapters. Um, but nevertheless, just seeking to understand how a book fits together, how, what's going on in the, in the wholeness of a book. Uh, this week I did something interesting in preparation for the sermon. Not only did I read the whole text from cover to cover several times, but I actually wrote it down by hand. It slowed me down and it made my attentiveness more, 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 more deep so that I was able to, to start seeing how various key themes are starting to emerge and, and Paul is writing this unified letter and there's a, there's a coherence, there's a message, there's something important for us to get from this book. But how do you put it all together? There's a number of things that, 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 that come to mind as we look at this wholeness, at this, at this book. And, and this morning, there might be more things that we could look at, but this morning I'd like for us to look at four things that Titus is about. Now, some of these points will be very short. One in particular will be very long. And of all the points, if you will, of all the four points, the long one will really be like the, the cherry on the cake. Um, so all four points are things that, that are part of what this book is about. But look for the long one. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Just you'll be able to follow along. Here's the first point about the book of Titus. What is, the, what is Titus about? Well, first of all, it is about order in the church. It's about order in the church. Um, Paul wrote this letter to Titus as 1.4 says to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. But why is Paul writing to Titus? Where was Titus when he received this letter? The verse goes on and says, in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. Now what was Titus doing in Crete? The text does not tell us uh, when Paul visited um, Crete, but we get the impression here that Paul visited Crete with Titus, and Paul left Titus in Crete to do what? To put in order whatever remained to be put in order. It's interesting that Paul wants Titus to remain in Crete to put what remained into order. Order was an important part of what was supposed to happen in Crete. Now again, it's safe to assume that Paul visited Crete along with Titus and let Titus behind to finish off some things. We don't know when that, ha when that visit happened. If we look, read the book of Acts, there's no indication at what point in the book of Acts Paul might have visited Crete. Something, something, it was at some point in between mid-50s and, and early-60s. Others think Paul may have visited Crete after 
the imprisonment finished at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul was imprisoned for two years in Rome. Something that Paul was released after that and did some more missionary activity, and it's possible that he visited Crete afterwards. We, we don't know. But the bottom line is it doesn't matter exactly when Paul visited. The bottom line is it's very clear that Paul visited the, 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 the island, he preached the gospel, and some have responded to the preaching of the gospel. It's interesting that those who responded to the gospel through repentance and faith began living life together. They did not remain as isolated Christians, but became, if you will, members of, of local churches in different towns on the island of Crete. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul leaves Tim uh, Titus to put into order certain things. This need for order betrays the formation of communities that have to have order. They have to be order among these believers, and Titus was supposed to carry that order out. And one of the reasons why Paul writes this letter to Titus is to give him instructions about what that order involved. Occasionally, I uh, hear people who say that they are Christians, but they are not into organized religion. You hear people say that? Occasionally I hear that. Perhaps you know someone, um, perhaps even one who's close to you, who, who believes that. Uh, friends, do you realize that this book of Titus and what Titus was left to do in Crete is evidence that the Apostle Paul wanted Christians to live in an orderly way in local churches. And their gathering together, their life together as Christians, had to have some order. So let that sink in. For anyone who says, I want to be a Christian, but I want to be a Christian in a, in a disorderly way, meaning on my own, just me and myself, or just me and, and my family. The book of Titus is about order in the church. Paul left Titus to, in, uh, in Crete for this purpose. A second thing why what the book of Titus is about, it's about establishing the right leadership. It's about establishing the right leadership. Now, some might object to the point we just made earlier to say that the text doesn't tell us that the order Titus was to establish in Crete uh, was related to the local church. There's there's no word for church at this point in the passage. So how would we know that the order assumed local churches? Well, it's interesting to look more carefully at what the order that Paul asked Timothy to, to set, what that order involved. What did it look like? What did it took? What did it take to, to set this order in place? The first thing that Paul says to Titus is it involves setting leaders over these Christians. And these leaders are set over local churches. Look again at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This means it's not the first time Paul spoke to Titus about elders. Now he reminds him through this letter to set these elders up as Paul has directed them. Those who respond to the gospel did not remain isolated, run rangers, 
uh, Christians, unconnected. They formed these congregations, these gatherings. They would gather regularly. And Paul was deeply concerned that their gatherings would be orderly. And part of that order was to ask Titus to establish elders over them. In verses 6 through 9, Paul gives Titus instructions about the qualifications of these elders. Who should be set over as overseers, as shepherds, as elders over these newly converted Christians? Well, verses 6 through 9 gives us details. We will not look at these details now. We'll look at them in a, in a few weeks. But friends, I wonder if you ever thought that order in a church begins with clarifying who is called to shepherd and lead that congregation? Who is called to lead and protect the congregation? Humanly speaking, we know that spiritually it is, it is the Lord Jesus who is the head of the church. We know that spiritually we're led by this book, by the, by the scriptures. But humanly speaking, who is called to lead, protect, guide, nurture, instruct, exhort, rebuke, comfort the local church, the believers? It is elders. It's interesting that Paul does not entrust this work to a, a body of deacons or to a body of committees or to a body of certain departments, but to shepherds, overseers, or elders. Now, who are the members entrusted to oversee the life of the church? Well, we'll look at these qualifications in a few weeks. Paul wanted Titus to include in this order establishing the right leadership. And yet another part of order was not simply to establish the right leadership, but also to clarify the sound teaching of the gospel and what this gospel produces in us, in believers, here and now. Therefore, in order for Titus to carry out the order that Paul wanted him to carry out, Titus was to commit himself to sound doctrine to teaching it, and to living it out. So, what is Titus about? It's about ordering the church. It's about establishing the right leadership. Thirdly, it's about sound doctrine and godliness. It's about sound doctrine and godliness. As we continue on in looking at chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we observe that the life of the new believers in this island, in Crete, uh, was threatened by several elements, several threats, Distortion of the truth, misguidance, and plain error that abounded among them. In chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, Paul addressed several kinds of threats um, that were around these new Christians. And look at these just briefly. In verses 10 and 11, Paul speaks about a subset of people who must be silenced. Take that as an encouragement for the church. There are some people who must be silenced. Interesting. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision party. We don't know exactly uh, how the connection between these people and the circumcision party are, but apparently there's some connection. They must be silenced. There are other traps uh, among these people. There are cultural values that... Um, that Crete promoted these values are being quoted by one of the poets or one of the prophets of Crete. Right, Paul says um, that they were 
liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's an interesting place, interesting culture. Paul even says that's true. So what do you do when these values of, of culture still represent or still characterize Christians? Paul tells them, uh, Titus, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. For these Christians, even though they were living in a culture with fallen values, their new faith in Christ was supposed to lead them to a different kind of set of values. Then verse 15 and 16, Paul describes people who profess to know God but deny Him by their works. These people are a threat for the people of God because they promote a distorted knowledge of God, a knowledge that is only a head knowledge of God but does not lead us to actual change. Friends, Titus identified this dangerous category of people who may actually live in a, in a community, in a church. How many people today are happy with a verbal profession of knowing God? And yet their lives do not show it. For these people, Paul has some very harsh descriptions. Look at verse 16 again. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Interesting. I wonder, I wonder, friends, as we listen to these words that Paul has for Titus and gives him instructions of how to think about certain categories of people, I wonder if we have a category for people who claim to know God but deny Him by their works. Do we have a category for people like that? Or are we wiser than Paul and think that everyone who professes to know God must be a Christian? I'm just asking if we realize that there's a possibility that people who claim to know God actually may not know Him. And the test of their true knowledge of God is not what they say about God, but how they live. Chapter 2, Paul moves on to speak uh, plainly about the kind of life that is in accordance with sound doctrine. Notice the command in, in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, in contrast with what we just, we just heard about these threats, um, people who distort the truth of the gospel, it, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. <laughs> now, what accords with sound doctrine? Systematic theology? According to Paul, verses 2 to 10 is what accords with sound doctrine. These are specific instructions. What Titus must teach various segments of Christians in the church. What Titus must teach the older men. What Titus must teach the younger women. I mean the older women. So that the older women can teach the younger women and then the younger men and the slaves. What accords with sound doctrine is not only sound doctrine, but also the implications of sound doctrine for our daily conduct, for our way of life, 
for our behavior. Now, you may have heard people who say, Christianity is not a religion of rules. Have you heard people say that? Now, that's true in certain ways. It is true that at the heart of Christianity uh, is not a set of rules, but the salvation that God offers freely, graciously, through His Son, Jesus, so that all those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ for their salvation are granted eternal life. Friend, if you're here this morning, if perhaps you're visiting with us, and if you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to understand and, and, and hear this good news of what the gospel is. It's a news of God's salvation, that God is determined to rescue rebel, rebels, sinners like you and I, through the sacrifice of Christ, so that all those who repent, who turn away from their sin and, and put their faith in Jesus, rely on Christ for their salvation, and on Him alone, they can be saved. Friends, if you'd like to know more about that, we, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But I want to encourage you to respond to this gospel with repentance and faith. This offer of salvation, this offer of the gospel is universal. It is to be offered to all people. In this sense, it's true that Christianity is not a religion of rules. But if we say that Christians, once they're saved, have no rules for their lives, no commands to observe, friends, that is utterly false. The letter to Titus is an example that those who respond to the gospel have new rules by which to live their lives. And there are specific commands for older men, for older women, for younger men, for younger women. And even for the segment of society at that age, in that age, that first century, who are slaves and bond slaves. Now, what is the biblical motivation for these commands? Why, why, why does the Bible have commands for Christians how to live in particular ways? Well, the answer, why should, why, do we, why should we live differently? Why do we have commands? Well, the answer is given in verses 11 and 14 in verse of chapter 2. Paul describes in these verses the grace of God. Christianity is a religion of grace. No question about that. But notice what this grace does in us once we're saved. Let's look at these verses. For the grace of God has appeared. It bringing salvation to all people. But it doesn't stop there, does it? This grace of God does something else. Not only does it bring salvation to all people, it trains us, it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The grace of God not only brings us salvation, but trains us. Have you ever been in a training program? Have you ever been with a trainer who tells you what to do and what not to do if you're going to grow in a particular practice? The grace of God trains us. And therefore, that's why we have commands for Christians how to live. 
We have rules of how, how to live our lives because the grace of God trains us. It's a grace that trains us to live in a new way, a way that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. Now, friends, if you want to call this legalistic, you might as well call the grace of God legalistic. Because the grace of God has certain rules, certain trainings that it has for us. Notice why the grace of God is engaged in this training of righteousness. Why is the grace of God training us in this direction? Look at verse 14. When he describes Jesus, Paul says, who gave him, Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, the salvation that Jesus brings is a salvation away from lawlessness toward purity and good works. In chapter 3, Paul gives more instructions to Titus, what should he pass to these new believers? In verse, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, these instructions relate to how Christians should relate to society, to everyone in society, even to rulers and authorities. And then in, chapter, in verses 3 to 7, Paul gives another summary of the gospel, starting with describing our state of sin. Look at verse 3. Paul describes how these Christians... Paul included, were before they were saved. Now, Paul could have simply said, we were sinners. And that would have been true. But that's not what Paul writes. When he describes his past and the past of his people to whom he writes to these Christians, here's how Paul describes the past time before being saved. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If you want to see a definition of sin or a, a, a display of sin, here is a list of some of those things. This is how Paul describes our lives before being saved. And then in verse 4 through 7, after this, this description of, of our sinful past life, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. How sweet. How sweet this new news is. That even though we were disobedient, even though we were led astray, even though we were slaves to our passions, even though we were concerned with our own selves, envious of what other people have, even though all of that happened in every one of us, God, in His goodness and kindness, saved us. Praise be to God. But why did God save us? Well, He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, says verse 5. He didn't save us because we started acting righteously. He didn't save us because we started making new resolutions of how to improve ourselves and be better people for ourselves. No, God saved us according to His own mercy. It's only His mercy. It's only because of His mercy that we are saved. Well, friends, God saves us not because of what we do, but because of what He chooses to do in us. 
God saves us not because we try to fix ourselves or because we try to make new resolutions to be better versions of a sinful me. God saves us because of his own mercy. And when he saves us, notice what he does. He saves us because of his own mercy. And when he saves us, look at what happens. Verse 5b, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he had poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to hope of eternal life. Friends, this is a sound doctrine of the gospel. The truth that we declare as Christians, this is the foundation on which Christians now can start living new lives, upright lives, pursuing purity and godliness. It's because God has poured on us the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit regenerated us. The Holy Spirit renewed us so that we may start being able to live differently. So verse 8 says, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Why? Why insist on helping people understand the sound doctrine of God's saving grace? Look again at the rest of verse 8. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul wants Christians in Crete to be devoted to doing good. We see this focus again in, in chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul tells Titus, and let our people learn to be devoted themselves to good works. Now, throughout this letter, there are six times when Paul mentions good works. Well, you figure six times in three chapters. That must make it somewhere on this list of what is Titus about. But as you look at this, this theme of good works in the book of Titus, I want to review briefly. In chapter 2, verse 7, Titus is commanded to be a model of good works. In chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that Christ purifies the people for his own possession to be zealous for good works. That's why God, why, why Christ purifies us, so that we would be zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says we should be ready for every good work. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that those who believe in God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. And in 3.14, Christians should learn to devote themselves to good works. Do you hear the strong emphasis? The importance of good works? But good works, dear friends, in Titus, good works is not simply acts of service. Good works is not mere social action, such as feeding the poor or going on a mission trip. Although those are good things to do, and they are part of good works, they can certainly be examples of the kind of good works we should be ready to do. But good works in the book of Titus is a lot more than mere social action. In Titus, the reference to good works includes our way of life as Christians, our godliness as people who have been reborn. Now you say, how do, where do I get that from? Well, remember in chapter 1 how Paul described these people who are a threat to the new believers. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16. The people who profess to know God, but they deny Him. By what do they deny Him? 
not by their mouths, but by their works. Interesting. It is by their works that these people deny that they know God. More so, such people, Paul says, are unfit for any good work. Well, friends, non-believers or even false Christians can do a lot of good social works. Paul here speaks about good works to be that which an unbeliever or a false convert is unfit for it. He cannot do any good work because he's not regenerate. He's not saved. So good works in Titus is not mere social action, although it includes that. It goes deeper than just acts of service. It's a kind of life, or an entire way of life that can be summarized by a life of, of good works, a life of doing good, a life characterized by good. Oh, friends, we can do a lot of good things, and yet it is possible for some among us not to be Christians. In Titus, this theme of, of, of doing good works or doing good is another way of describing a life of godliness, a, go a godliness that is being rooted in the new nature that God gives us when we respond to the gospel. But I wonder if you've ever realized that one of the key messages of the book of Titus is this. And here's reviewing the third point. Sound doctrine leads to godliness. The true teaching of Scripture, the true understanding of the gospel ought to lead us to grow in godliness, ought to produce in us godliness. And this godliness is seen through the purity of life, through uprightness, and through a devotion of doing good to all people. So thirdly, what is, the, what is Titus about? It's about sound doctrine leading to godliness. And fourthly and lastly, and this one will be short, it's about the weightiness of these truths. It's about the importance of these truths. As we worked our way through this letter, when we read it and we reviewed it, I wonder if you noticed the repeated commands for Titus not simply to teach sound doctrine and to teach the implications of sound doctrine, but Titus was to insist on these teachings. He was to teach this with all authority. Look at 2.15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Look at 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Earlier in chapter 1, when Paul spoke about the description for elders, notice in 1.9, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul hammers home for, Tim, for Titus the importance of these truths. They're not simply a sermon series that Paul can move on, I mean, Titus can preach once and then move on to other things. These are truths on which Titus was to insist and come back to these over and over and over again. Why such strong language? Friends, because according to Scripture, 
according to sound doctrine, godliness is not an optional experience on top of the gospel. You don't get the gospel by itself and then for those who want to have some more, then they get godliness. That separation is impossible. If you separate it, you fall into the, in the distortion that, that Paul addressed earlier in Titus. Sound doctrine ought to lead to godliness. I wonder, friends, if you realize that our pursuit of godliness is a big test for helping us know whether or not we understand the truth of the gospel and the truth about the grace of God. So what is Titus about? We can summarize it in four truths. And I give you a hint. The longest is the most important. It's about ordering the church. It's about establishing the right leadership, or a leadership that has a firm grip on the, on the sound doctrine so they may teach it and live it well before others. It's about sound doctrine leading to godliness. Friends, the sound teaching of the gospel does not merely save us from hell and grant us access to heaven. God saves us in order that Jesus may purify us for himself. And that begins here and now. Lastly, it's about the weightiness of these important truths in the life of the church. Friends, we live in a time when many promote a gospel that does not lead to godliness. It's a gospel of quick decisions. It's a gospel of easy assurances. Titus would have none of it. But not only would he would have none of it, he would rebuke such distortions of the truth because sound doctrine ought to lead to godliness, and this is ultimately what the book of Titus will teach us as we begin it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you saved us not because of what we have done. You saved us totally because of your mercy. And yet you saved us not simply to leave us in our sin, not to leave us slaves to our passions, not to leave us into our lawlessness. You saved us out of it. You rescued us from it. You rescued us so that you may purify a people for your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, prepare us. Help us to understand these connections. As we begin the sermon series in the next few weeks, Lord, give us your grace to understand how sound doctrine leads to godliness and help us as a church to be a, a beacon, a true representation of the grace that you have lavished upon us. In the name of Christ we pray for his, great, for his glory and honor. Amen.